Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer Podcast, episode 54. Uh, Julian Duvivier in the 30s, part one. Uh, as usual, I'm David Blakesley, host of this podcast, along with Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. Hello, David. As as usual, I am Trevor as well. Today. That's Today right. I'm Trevor. Yeah, well, and we'll, <laughs> we'll try to stay consistent with that. Uh, but we are we are moving out of the uh, the Japanese realm that we've been exploring the past few weeks, and it seems like about every other episode is a Japanese set of some sort or another. Uh, we just, uh, you know, last week talked with uh, Pablo Canota, and uh, finished up our episodes on uh, the Nikatsu Noir set. That was a fun conversation. Pablo's always got a great uh, batch of trivia and insight and background information to illuminate uh, our discussions of, of uh, Japanese genre films. Uh, well, today we're uh, switching our gears and moving over to the uh, beautiful country of France. And to go ahead and give us a little bit more in-depth understanding of the cinema of that uh, great nation and its tradition. Uh, we have a good friend, Aaron West. Hello, Aaron. Bonjour. Comment ça va? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, see, we're getting right into it. Very authentic. Yes. Well, Aaron West, you've been a you know, a repeat uh, visitor here. Uh, we had you talking about, uh, was we at Oshima? Right. And uh, what else? Is that the only other uh, Eclipse viewer that you've done in the past? I thought there was one more. They, we talked several times on various shows. Yes, yeah, so. we talk all the time. All the time. Right? <laughs> so, so I'm sure if you're familiar with this uh, podcast, you are familiar with Aaron West and the things that he does on the Criterion cast uh, family uh, with Criterion close-up. He and Mark Herney uh, started a couple of years ago, uh, Criterion Now. Uh, I don't know. Do you want to do any other introductions of yourself there, Aaron, for anybody who might somehow be listening here for the first time? Uh, that's I'm a nerd. That's that's it. <laughs> I'm a Criterion nerd, uh, just like all of us uh, in good yes, company. We um, exactly. Um, we're. Mm-hmm. I would say I'm I'm kind of if I would to pick my my um, my wheelhouse, it would be probably 30s French film. Is that just when I was going through school, that was what I gravitated towards, and that's what stuck with me, even though I like all sorts of film. So this, uh, in fact, when this was announced, I think I even let you guys know, hey, <laughs> it's, I'm on this show, damn it, <laughs> darn it. The, the, the proactive uh, self-invitation. That's there. right. And I'm yeah. very Unabashed. glad that you extended. <laughs> yeah, even if you hadn't, I'm sure we would have definitely, you know, rung your number and said, hey, Aaron, help us out here. It took a while. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're here to talk about the, uh, to date, the most current of the Eclipse series uh, releases, which I guess came out, what, in late 2015 as uh, mm-hmm. uh, Series 44, as already said, Julian Duvivier in the 30s. Uh, Julian Duvivier is one of the, uh, you know, most celebrated of uh, French directors, although maybe not as celebrated uh, these days uh, because he does not seem to have that reputation of the genre noirs or, or others of that era, uh, even Marcel Carnet mm-hmm. and René Clair, um, Maurice Pagnol, I guess he's going to be having a, you know, at least seems pretty clear that the Criterion will be releasing his uh, set later this year. Uh, but let's just talk a little bit about Julien de Vivier and, and maybe how this Eclipse series set came to be. Uh, yeah, obviously, Criterion and Janus Films has the rights to a lot of films from this era, and... Uh, the whys and wherefores of how they choose what makes up an Eclipse series set are always a little bit of a mystery. But uh, this to date, like I say, is the is the last one that they've released. 
we've uh, we've speculated. There's been rumors. The, the Berlanga set of uh, Spanish films that uh, Peter Becker kind of hinted at in an article towards the end of last year uh, is kind of maybe the next uh, anticipation that the Eclipse series might actually continue and at least reach uh, the number 45. But for right now, Duvivier's the end of the line, and it's been well over a year now that we've uh, you know, even had any indications of anything else coming up. So um, Julian Duvivier, with a with a you know a strong reputation among people who've really studied French cinema, uh, has you know a very long career. I think I counted sixty-seven films are listed mm-hmm. uh, that he helmed, uh, starting back in the silent era in the late nineteen teens. Didn't really seem to hit his stride until maybe a little bit later in the nineteen twenties. But by the time the sound era came in, which is which is what we're going to be getting into today. Um, sound films starting in the 19, uh, 1930. I think both of these films, were they both 1930 that we're going to talk about today? Uh, Aaron, is that... Uh, David, can help me David Golden is... Or Golder is 30, and the other was yeah. 34, was 32. it? 32. 32. Uh, Thank yeah. You. Right, so we're, yeah, we're going to be talking about two films today, the first two of this set. So we are talking about a two-part series again. It's interesting, Aaron, you know, when we first kind of pitched this idea around, I thought, well, maybe we could just do four films in, in one episode. <laughs> you kind of advised against that. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yeah, that uh, recommendation, which I now endorse, but you know, what was your thinking at the time? Well, I, I had some familiarity with uh, Duvivier, and I, I, I think he's, I think your description of him being sort of the unsung French auteur um, is kind of in the shadows, is, is on, on par. Uh, he does. He's not a Renoir or a Carnet or even a Claire, as far as reputation. But I'd say he's right up there. You know, maybe not quite Renoir's level, but uh, his reputation among filmmakers of the time was pretty lofty. And I think his uh, the films hold up. I think uh, among my fellow cinephiles that are familiar with the area uh, and academics as well, he's pretty much one of the one of the titans. I think the other is Renoir. And I, I know his he has a, a good um a distinct style and I I think the, the these two films or these four films separate pretty well because we have his early sound career and uh, with early French film as they started with with sound most of it was adaptations and uh, theatrical um, uh, adaptations literary adaptations and so forth Whereas then they started becoming writing their own material, and Duvivier did this as well. So the other films in this set are later, and uh, and he was then more established, and I'd say he was at the height of his career uh, towards the end of the 30s. So you almost get there's almost a gap in between, and then you have Pepe Lamoco, uh, La Bella Quip, um, uh, you have Le Fin de Jour, The Golem, Bandera, a lot of major works. They're now kind of forgotten, but they're important for his career genesis. So yeah, I, I think they separate pretty well, and I'm, I'm glad. And also, they're they're deep. There's a, a lot to them. You have to kind of get into the history, the political history. I'm sure we'll get into that, especially with uh, David Goldair. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to uh, unpack historically and uh, cinematically. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. There's these are films that yeah I have had a chance to watch each of them twice now, and yeah, just find myself really getting caught up in their worlds um and i yeah i I do see that this is these are these seem like films of an artist who's still kind of gathering steam and 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 that he has greater works ahead of him but these are 
these are pretty substantial and, and very thought-provoking films that uh, I really have enjoyed uh, digging into. So, Trevor, why don't you just give us a first impression of the of the two that we're going to talk about today. Uh, before I turn it over to you, I just want to say, here's our game plan. We're going to talk about the first two films in this set, and then the uh, Criterion close-up, uh, you know, Aaron and Mark's show that I've already referenced earlier. We've got an episode on Duvivier, part of their French series, and uh, then we'll be following it up uh, somewhere down the road, maybe in early April, uh, with the final two films of, of this uh, box set. So, so Trevor, kind of give us just a little bit of an impression. What do you think about uh, Duvivier as we start uh, tackling these films? Oh, boy. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out how to talk about this without sounding kind of just uh, ridiculous and superlative because I, I really, really enjoyed them first off. But... I, I've said it before, you know, I think that um, my perspective of cinema from this era is always of one of limitations that, oh, the transferring from silent to sound, all of the directors had some troubles and their films were stayed and stagey and, you know, kind of locked down. But then you see something like like uh, Paul de Corat, where mm-hmm. it's so fluid and so airy almost that it's it's beautiful and david golder certainly never felt locked down you've got the great performances by harry bauer um in in both of these films but i guess in particular in david golder that that really lends it um just this gravity it it, you know he's a stage actor for a while but this does not feel stagey to me um, there's just some real beauty with the innovations, and, but they don't call attention to themselves. Um, I don't. I, I don't really know what poetic realism means, Aaron. So maybe you can help me out with that. <laughs> um, but this feels like that. There's something grounded and um, and you know realistic about these films. Um, you know the the camera moves and does lots of nice things, but without feeling uh, like just a bunch of flourish. Rather, mm-hmm. it feels like something that um, almost emotional. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if that's part of the poetic realism and what that phrase means when applied to these these films. But you know, <clears throat> that's the stuff that drew me to Renoir the first time that I started watching his work was you know something like a day in the country, which is just beautiful um mm-hmm. from beginning to end i mean it you, it feels like i can feel a nice summer sun with a little bit of a breeze blowing and then the the rain coming over it well these movies particularly again the second one reminded me so much of that movie um david golder itself you know the again the performances but it it feels quite different it's not as airy it's more um atmospheric in a, in a way of, of, of rooms and things closing in on somebody and, and a little bit darker, <clears throat> which again fits so nicely with with the tone of the film. It just, it, I, I really enjoyed them. Um, I, I, and I, I'm, you know, I've said it before, I, I think that when we valorize too much things like, you know, this, this period with Hitchcock and he was always the greatest director of all time, 
I, no, not then. No, he wasn't. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> Agree. He, he, he wasn't doing much of anything relative to, to what someone like Duvivier or Renoir or a lot of the Japanese directors that we've talked about from the, from the 30s. Um, you know, he certainly, certainly got there. Uh, but I, I feel like these things are always so refreshing and just help me to realize how much beauty and how much thoughtfulness was was already going into this it doesn't feel restricted by its technology or its time it just doesn't um mm-hmm. and i put a lot of that on duvva and on his his crew for for being able to pull all of that off so looking forward to, to digging into these with you two today yeah okay well we've got all these thumbs up over here you want to go <laughs> in with something there Aaron? well i i just want to say buckle in because uh uh, if if you had that kind of reaction to these first two, uh, and you're about to see, I don't know, maybe hopefully half a dozen, maybe more, if if you have time and and access, uh, I think that what what you like, and I hate to set expectations too high, but I, I in this case I think it's fair. I, I think uh, his mid thirties, late thirties work is really really nails that poetic realism. And, and to your point, I, I will say that the, uh, of course. The history of French cinema, as I just mentioned, it's the first few years was were all about adaptations, and that's what happened here. But they the filmmakers applied their own voice, like for example, Claire and Pagnol. Definitely, uh, well, of course, Pagnol was a was in, involved in film as well and literature, or in theater and literature. But it is these little flourishes that, and, and as you put it, Trevor, they don't draw attention to themselves. They're just they're subtle. And I like David Goldare, There are some. There's that one scene where he, they just pan over the, the dinner table, and you see just the excess of uneaten f- food and spilled drinks, and um, and it doesn't say, oh look, this is uh, excess, but it just sort of lingers there and lets you figure it out. Has those little solitary solitary moments. I think that's really what poet poetic realism, or at least the poetry aspect of poetic realism. And then the realism was just the politics of the time. And I think that's really prominent with uh, David Goldare, really the, uh, and I'm sure as we dig in, we'll get into the capitalist versus communist. Uh, in fact, they even shout out the proletariat uh, at one point. But th- Oh, yeah, yeah. This was this is definitely right at the heart of the political, you know, conflicts that were roiling Europe in the early 1930s. I mean, this is, mm-hmm. you know, we, we look back on this as a, in a historical lens and we sort of know how the story ended, but this is very much like, which way are we going to go here? And uh, yeah, we'll get into the politics, but let's just talk a little bit first about de Vivier himself. Uh, we usually like to give a little bit of background on the, oh, sorry. On the director. <laughs> and so we'll just I go ahead and jump do right that. In. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll make this pretty quick. So de Vivier, uh, had a had a background as an actor himself. He came that came up on the stage, began directing. Uh, from, from what I've read, uh, and I've got some links in our show notes if anybody wants to read further. But you know, he he didn't get off to a particularly auspicious beginning of his career, but he stuck with it. Um, by the mid nineteen twenties, he did a, a, his first version of Paul de Carat, which uh, translates as Carrot Top uh, or the Redhead, and. Uh, you know, it's about a, it's a, ch- a story of a child who goes through some pretty hard experiences, and we'll we'll unpack all of that. Mm-hmm. But that was a popular success, an adaptation of a of a of a sort of a anthology of little stories or vignettes that had been written in the late eighteen nineties and had been adapted for the stage, and it was kind of a known property. Uh, but it was very successful. I think I found a few clips of the earlier version on YouTube uh, that. 
viewers might want to you know, look for and compare. Oh, nice. Yeah, but uh, you know, by the 1930s, uh, David Goldair was his first uh, sound film, and this you know, 1930. Obviously, sound is just beginning to transition in. But uh, Duvivier, you know, had had pretty quickly learned and, and understood the, the the craft and technique of filmmaking, and what we see here is a very confident hand of a of a of a young man who's uh, you know learned a lot. Uh, he's he's you know kind of come up in in uh, circles that you know we you, some of the names that we've already mentioned there were also coming of age in the same era mm-hmm. uh, carnet renoir etc so there was a very uh, uh, kind of a, a fertile fervent a creative atmosphere and of course you know paris and france has a, just a, a great tradition of the arts and uh, Duvivier embraced that and and flourished and 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 took it into new dimensions there um other other aspects of Duvivier's background that you might want to fill us in on, Aaron. Anything that uh, maybe has slipped past my attention there? Well, at, on a, at a high level, I think you did cover it. Uh, he he did have a, a he he did get his footing in, in silent films, and I think he was seen as serviceable, if not uh, not what he would become. Um, and in fact, your mention of the the previous uh, uh, re- the redhead. I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give the sure. English name. Uh, he worked with uh, Jacques Fader uh, on that, uh, and Jacques Fader was one of the sort of the he was considered the big five of poetic realism, but he was also more of a mentor towards the others, and so that I'm sure that was um, uh, formulative for for him as a filmmaker, and and yeah, I, I think actually uh, David Goldair is where he finally uh, reached success, and then he uh, he. Continued that throughout the 30s. Uh, then he, like many French filmmakers, he left for America, and uh, actually did okay. I think I don't know if you've seen a lot of his American films, but uh, no, I saw there's one uh, it called Lydia that's on Filmstruck from 1941 with um, oh, let's see, Merle Oberon is in it, and uh, you know a few familiar names to uh, you know Hollywood or. Uh, English actors mm-hmm. of that time. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of curious to check that out. I may, may do that in the interim just to sort of see where where um, de Vivier's career went. I think he was recruited by David O. Selznick uh, in kind of a late 30s tour of Europe, just kind of seeing who he could sign up and uh, brought a pretty you know considerable list of who's who's uh, over with him to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So de Vivier did some work there and then went back to uh California in the World War II years, and then eventually did return to France and had to kind of rebuild his career. But that's a little bit further down the road, so right, we'll right, sorry. sort of hint at that. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Uh, uh, but yeah, so so De Vivier, I think you know it's it is interesting, just kind of as a background. Maybe we'll explore this a little bit more. But I think because you know, other than Pepe Lamoco, which uh, is maybe seen by a lot of viewers is more of a Jean Gabin movie mm-hmm. uh, and the, the Casbah and all the exoticism uh, and even the, the <laughs> kind of humorous connection with Pepe Le Pew and all of that. Um, you know, it's not like Duvivier as the director of that film particularly stands out. Uh, but I think because these films are kind of reality based, they're not flashy. Uh, they're, they, you know, maybe don't seem to have that larger than life feel to them. I mean, I think, I think you could make the argument that these films are really quite powerful and, and, mm-hmm. and, and very significant uh, with, with great acting performances uh, with, with beautiful cinematography, 
intriguing set designs and just a, a, a you know very immersive atmosphere there's plenty to like you know and if these had been uh, released as Blu-ray standalones, I think they'd be very worthy of that honor, sort of like uh, Renoir's La Chienne. But, mm-hmm. you know, Renoir had that career that he has that legendary status that makes his early works a little, maybe a little bit more marketable as standalone products. With Duvivier, they got to sort of bundle them up and put them in the Eclipse series. But I'm really glad that they did because uh, these are films that are just beyond uh you know mere streaming material if you will <laughs> and uh and it's nice to have have a box set of its own uh even if this is the last of the eclipse series that uh that we'll see at least for some time so yeah uh let's go ahead and get into these movies then all right let's just talk about david goldair uh he uh this is a story that was based on a novel uh that was uh apparently pretty popular at the time um, about a a Jewish businessman who's kind of come up uh, to a a level of of success and even notoriety. He's, uh, you know, he's he's accumulated a pretty vast fortune. He has a wife and a daughter who are very much uh, enjoying the fruits of his labors, uh, even to sort of an indulgent, decadent level. Uh, and there's a lot of dysfunction that has uh, occurred within his family as a result of, of the materialism and the and the indulgence and the excess that uh, his wealth and his fame have have made possible. And so we we have a story of rags to riches, but we're basically spending the time <laughs> with 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 the riches that, in a way, you know descends back to rags but not in a sense of his <laughs> fortune being lost it's it's the fact that his fortune still left a an unfillable void at the heart of it all so you know david golder is a you know as a character he's portrayed by harry bauer which uh you know listeners may recognize harry bauer uh as the uh, great performance to me it is the definitive performance i've ever seen of jean valjean and les miserables absolutely which uh, yeah which uh, yeah mark herney uh, he was our guest when we covered the raymond bernard set uh well several years ago i think it was around a christmas time in 2012 2013 14 something like that but uh yeah yeah harry bauer this 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 kind of uh you know, mountain of a man, this this big, hefty, imposing figure with this chiseled face and and this in, indomitable presence. You know, and whatever he does, and and uh, that's the other treat of this box set is that Harry Bauer is featured in, in all four of these films. Uh, but I really enjoyed seeing. Uh, another expression of Harry Bauer, even though the Jean Valjean character <laughs> himself <laughs> goes through several transformations and you see different personalities almost emerge from the same man or the same character over the course of those three excellent films. Uh, here you get to see Harry Bauer you know, take on some other challenges. So, uh, yeah, who, who wants to pick me up from there? I mean, I've kind of given a little bit of introduction to David Golder, but how do we want to start picking this thing apart? Well, maybe if you don't mind... I'll just jump in and, and say that as far as a, a general story, um, you know, this one didn't do a ton for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's fairly, yeah. it, it you know, it, it was written by a very young um, novelist named Irene Nebiroski. Um She, you know, this was her breakout debut novel, and she was in her early twenties. And you, I think you can see that in the story. There's a little bit of a, of a preachiness to it. 
uh, that's a little heavy-handed and maybe a little bit even simplistic at times. <clears throat> um, but uh, as far do you, as... Do you know enough, Trevor, what, what, what made the novel pop as, as popular as it apparently was? I, I, mean, I don't. You know, I, just, I would okay. assume that part of it's just the time period that it came out in, um, you know, right Did around the time to... of the, the Depression. Um, you've got this story of someone who realizes money can't do everything for you. Um, and is also a little bit punished for his his pursuit of money. Um, I, I, so I'm assuming that has a little bit to do with it. Um, as far as Irene Nemirovsky, yeah, she is she is very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, she's she was kind of a, a literary celebrity um, for several years there in the in the late 20s and then in the 30s. Um, but today. I think she's most famous, especially for us here in the U.S., for her death. She died um, in Auschwitz um, right. in 1942, I think, um, you know, survived by both her mother and her daughter, who kind of went on to, to have their own painful painful lives because of a lot of this um, these events. Um, and then, I don't know what year it was, 2004, 2005, 2006, right in there, um, one of her her novels that she wrote I, while in Auschwitz, um, Sweet Frances, was um, f- found by her daughter, who always thought it was just a journal that she really did not want to read. Um, but finally, as she was getting rid of the papers and kind of passing them on, said, well, let's just see what's here, and found out, oh, my mom was writing a novel and died before she, it was finished. I'm you know, maybe we should put this out there. And so that came out in France and was a hit. And then it was pu- uh, published in English a few years later and really hit the stands. I, I, mm-hmm. I got it at the time. And, and once again, um, <laughs> I didn't really think there was too much new to it. Not that it wasn't powerful. Um, but I think that the circumstances were, were, were very powerful. And, um, you know, her daughter's written a book too about her mom, um, so yeah, Irene Nemirovsky, very famous. And sadly, that story of you know here's someone who's at the prime of their artistic career and doing very well in the early 30s. Um, she's not the only one in this set who didn't didn't make it through the uh, through the war. And uh, you know, her, her in particular for her, the Holocaust. But <coughs> you know, even Harry Bauer and then the young star in in um, Carrot Top. Um, have similar fates, so so it's very very sad. But um, but yeah, I uh, you were asking. I, I kind of went on a little tangent there. No, um, this is great. I mean, this mm-hmm. really that that adds impact to this film. Just I didn't know this context, so thanks for providing. Yeah, she she she's, but yeah, she's very well known, and so I think that this this film was was probably quite anticipated. You know, um, <clears throat> as uh, if anybody knew that it was it was on the. Uh, coming up, and then there's uh, you know probably on the banner there's David Goldair, um, and it probably gave Duvivier a little bit of a the the boost that he needed to make a sound film um, that he was adapting this kind of material that had been so big from a from a young female um, you know literary celebrity uh, this was this was hot material, um, but uh, but yeah as far as the story itself for me it, it it's not. It's not that's not where the power is in this film. The power for me is in the cinematography, the direction, mm-hmm. and in Harry Bauer's performance. Um, all of those which give it a really nice grounding that takes it beyond just the well, the pursuit of wealth is 
is is empty and you know kind of not that I don't I I agree with a lot of the stuff that's said in here. I just think that it's not always said in the most interesting way and and his daughter is so petulant and annoying that I you know you want to turn it off when she's sitting there whining cuz she <coughs> oh it was just it was over the top but but um mm-hmm. but you've got these other aspects to it that make it make it better than I think the the story is and make it important in ways that just the mere story itself just doesn't do for me so that that's kind of my my initial thought. I was curious if you guys agreed. Aaron keeps saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> so "Sorry, I, think, I do that." I, I, no, I, I, <laughs> that I'm not sure if that's you going, mm-hmm, "You idiot!" I'm agreeing, or, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm agreeing with everything you say. Well, what's funny is uh, is is sweet Francaise. I'm glad you brought that up. My my wife is an English teacher, and so when when after I watched David Goldair and I was telling her about it, and she'll she'll never watch a 30s French film with me. But she she said, oh, oh uh, Nimorowski, I, I think that was the name, and and told me that whole story about uh, what really the exact same thing you just told me. And, and in fact, the book is, I'm looking at it, It's uh, I, I haven't read it, uh, but she said it was pretty good. Uh, I think she probably agrees with you, Trevor. It's not, uh, it's not earth-shattering, but uh, yeah, popular author. And I, I, I'm right with you as far as the story. I, I was actually, of, of all the VVAs, I was a little disappointed with this one because of the flat characters. Now I like the movie, but yeah, it's it's very heavy, ham-fisted, heavy-handed. Basically, it's sending the message the anti-capitalistic and how how things are are, are um, things are better if you share that sort of thing. Um, the the communist, uh, I guess, I don't want to say propaganda, but the uh, undercurrent. Um, but I, I think you're right. It was elevated, especially with Harry Bauer. And after I finished watching watching it, I thought, oh, hey, I really didn't like that. Um, but it, as I reflected on it and rewatched some key scenes and it sort of settled on me, uh, settled with me, I, I appreciated it a lot more, again, because of those nuances with the, the filmmaking style. I think Harry Bauer, and I, I agree, I think he's one of the, the uh, film acting legends and what's great is he doesn't have those movie star looks you know he kind of has that everyman look uh the, and and he looks different too and then here he does pull off an aging a little overweight uh, uh businessman whereas in uh, similar character in Les Miserables but a little more masculine and um a little more handy I guess you could say well yeah and in Les Mis he he's believable when he picks up you know, exactly. uh, people and carries them around or, you know, he just looks tough in this one. He looks like he's 70 or 65 maybe, but he's, he's only 50 yeah. um, when this film was, was in production. Um, so <laughs> I agree. And I agree that, yeah, he's, he, I'm sorry. He's got the stooped shoulders, the bags under the eyes, the man who's, you know, incredibly resourceful and determined and, mm-hmm. and, you know, he just set his mark on, making money and, and, and being a success and getting all the trappings of it and finds himself just utterly disgusted with, with the outcome. <laughs> I've got so to easy ask a quick too. question. Did he, did he just break out in sweat spontaneously in that one scene? Uh, he's sweating kind of throughout, but there was that one scene where I swear his face looked fine and then just slowly, just by the end of the scene, it, he is pouring out sweat. And I thought... 
I don't know if I've ever seen an actor about the scene do that. Later in yeah. the movie, where he's confronting a Hoyos, or yes, not really. He's yes. staring at him. They're mm-hmm. not saying a word. Exactly. He's Hoyos just, has his daughter's not... cigarette case, <laughs> and he's just brooding. It's just like maybe wow. Duvivier yeah. was turning up the heat. Uh, <laughs> it could be <laughs> mid scene. Yeah. Well, Klieg light, like nineteen uh, thirties. It's, it's not like know? they had the same heat we have, but <laughs> well, those those stage lights could be pretty brutal. They can, yeah. Yeah. That, which that so. really could be how it happened. I'm not sure, but I was. <laughs> I was blown away while we're sitting here talking about him. I just thought, wow, even an actor who can just turn on the sweat glands at will. And, <laughs> and I think the tear glands Total were certainly real. I, he, he really could emote, I think, right up there with well, probably better than a lot of them. And I think that's why he, he is in so many uh, prominent French films. And 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 today he'd probably get typecast as the dad, which he, he kind of is in, in The Redhead. But uh, Well, and one thing, I think it's in the... In the um, TCM blog for this film, I think it talks about how he lost his wife and son right before production started and, and under oh, wow. tragic circumstances and say that that really had an effect on his his acting style and just his his ability to, to just hold all of that even as he's just standing somewhere. So, yeah, He has a lot of presence, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, as a business magnet or as a, um, yeah, as you mentioned, a believable guy who can carry something. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think uh, to your point about the uh, the business aspect, the one thing I found is that business was pretty easy for him. And and of course, he, he was Jewish, but he wasn't stereotypical Jewish because, and I'm not condoning this, but he wasn't seen as greedy. He was just seen as more flippant with his money. I think, yeah, he was a big spender. Actually, he was right. very loose and indulgent. I mean, like you're right, you're right. The 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 money came in so fast and free that it was no thing for him to throw out big wads of banknotes at the gambling table, right? And <laughs> lose it all and go back to his reserves and then win it all back again. And he talks about you know he's been wiped out twenty times and started over twenty times, mm-hmm. and it's just like you know uh, fortune and bankruptcy are all just. You know, literally two sides of the coin for this guy, uh, but there's something else that's missing there. And I think you know it is it is kind of a exaggerated characteristic of of the super wealthy and those for whom wealth comes so easily at a time when you know fortunes had been lost and people were mm-hmm. living in poverty. And there's all this class struggle and all these you know these moral questions about uh, you know how how do we care for each other as a society and, and what about the poor and and what about these people who are seemingly living so free and easy so you know by by blowing these characters up to this larger than life uh, kind of conception i think audiences can relate to this i mean there's a lot of struggling dads who feel taken advantage of there's a lot of you know wives who feel like maybe their husband isn't taken good enough care of them there's a lot of parents with spoiled children uh, who are and again this is you know the end of the 20s early 30s you've got these kind of flappers and all the all the uh, hedonism all the all the uh, you know excess that is is definitely you know very visually uh, you know uh, lavished in here on screen i mean there's there is a, is a visual entertainment of of all the sparkles all the jewelry the champagne the, the crystal uh, the uh, the casino life and and all of that i mean it's it's quite compelling just to sort of see you know all this all this opulence on screen and these people kind of living living the life and then and then you know where it all winds up in this kind of 
you know, wretched uh, stateroom of a freighter there, and uh, right, uh, you know, and 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 how everything just gets stripped down. But uh, but along the way, before we get to the conclusion, I think there are just some interesting slices of life uh, and and some beautiful vignettes uh, in the different exchanges of the characters. Uh, one that really strikes my memory is that scene of. Uh, Joyce and her lover as they're, you know, scampering across the beach and just the beautiful, the lighting and the tracking shot as they're kind of sliding down those steps uh, on their way to the, uh, you know, running into the ocean waves. I mean, these are just really gorgeous moments that I, you know, I I, I just really enjoyed uh, Duvivier's willingness to sort of break from the narrative and, and, and put the story together in these kind of interesting and creative ways. Yeah, the camera's really not not stagnant, really ever. It's always fluid, and even from the beginning, just the interior household shots, the camera kind of, it's it's actually not as smooth as what I'm used to with tracking shots. It's a little bit, I don't want to say dizzying, but uh, unstable, and I, I kind of think he might have intended it that way. And there's a really good shot. Uh, well, he, he would shoot from different angles, too, and, and I really like, and actually we should probably talk about this, but after the stock market crash, uh, there's a, a shot from the perspective of the guy sweeping up the broom, or right. the guy pushing the broom, sweeping up all, all the stock certificates that have just been littered about. Uh, so yeah, I think the visual style, and and then you have uh, the contrast with the beauty, the the romance, and the um, the visual beauty of the beach, um, where where Joyce, the uh, the petulant child. I, it's funny. I, I just watched Mildred Pierce too. So um, that oh, yeah. seems to be all, all these evil daughters. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a pairing. Um, but I also think, along with the the camera, the, the the filmmaking style, I think one of the reasons it probably resonated with people is it was kind of uh, prescient as far as how it predicted the collapse. And sure, this was a collapse of really his fortune, but it was it was portrayed with a crash of the stock market, and and I'm sure that the he filmed it with knowledge of Black Friday in 1929, but then the uh, the that's the post the depression really yeah, the, it was reach, starting to reach Europe around that time, and I'm sure right, it, was, it really had not set in and mm-hmm. was certainly not known as the Great Depression in 1930 the way that we see it now or was known a few years later you're right people Uh, were on alert though and i think that's that's maybe another reason uh, they kind of the perils of capitalism and uh and that this bad things can happen and bad things are happening in the u.s and uh and so yeah and it it would actually kind of inform i think a lot of his work there's a lot of and and the politics of the time too they kind of go hand in hand since there's the 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 capitalist uh, uh unraveling um with the depression um, and the, well, I'm not going to get into the popular front, but uh, maybe maybe the next episode. Um. Yeah, well, you know, and I guess you know, to, you know, sort of you know, delve into that a little bit. I mean, the, the central tension, besides the family dysfunction here between the uh, you know the the husband and wife and and the daughter who just can't get enough of daddy's yeah uh, you know gifts and and. Uh, extraordinary indulgence is mm-hmm. is the tension that you know david golder who has been uh you know facing some adversity on the financial front and word is getting out that he's maybe not doing so well his scheme is to work out a a, a petroleum deal with with the soviets and uh hmm. you know that was not a that was not a, a a non-controversial thing that was not just business as usual uh you know the soviet union uh was 
you know, then and now seen as a very revolutionary, upsetting, radicalized uh, entity. Uh, they obviously had the, the size and the might of, of Russia and, and all of its wealth. Uh, but they were also known as you know, very crafty and, and in some circles very deceitful and, and uh, you know, dangerous. It was a dangerous entity to do business with. And yet that was kind of going to be his key to rescuing uh, his, his fortune and one more rise up from the ashes there. So, yeah, the, the, the politics here, I mean, from the, from the author's perspective, you know, maybe the Soviets were portrayed a little bit more sympathetically, but, you know, even that scene where, uh, after, you know, David Golder sort of, you know, makes his break and from the family and, and goes off to, uh, to meet with the Soviets, uh, they are the the filming of that scene really is quite striking. I mean, it it, it feels like you know uh, Lenin and and Engels and Marx and his <laughs> boys uh, sitting around you know conspiring and scheming. These, are, of course, are the successors to those founding fathers of communism. Uh, but yeah, what did you guys think of that? That just the way that whole scene was blocked out and framed. The slow pans over the the men's faces. All this. All this calculation going on, and then David Golder himself, really almost dressed uh, like like a vagabond off the street, you know, <laughs> as he's going to meet with these men. It was just quite, uh, you know, the, the the factory backdrop there, and just I don't know, just quite a quite a impressive uh, staging of of that encounter. I love it that the uh, they they called the the um, Russian immigrant uh, the businessman General Petroleum, and I don't know if that was a translation issue or if they're just simplifying the name. But um, but yeah, uh, I, I thought that was that was pretty fascinating. I don't know that it was it was really um, a sympathetic portrayal of them. I think you're right no. that they were. Seeing- well, I think the author's perspective might have been sympathetic. I'm not gotcha. sure that Duvivier's was right. Yeah, I think he was actually exalting uh, David Goldair and. And that's again one of the ways David Goldair is successful is because he does have the um, the cojones uh, to deal with these Russians and the Russian right. communistic autocrats is uh, what they might be. I don't, not a Trevor. I, I think I'm stealing some of your time. So what do you think? Oh no, no, you're totally fine. In fact, what you're just going into um, is something that I do find interesting in the in the story. I guess as I kind of derided it earlier is. Here's this kind of, uh, you know, here's a man that at the very beginning drives a fellow business partner of 20 years to suicide. And by the end, you're kind of like, well, that guy sure has been through. He's almost seen as a martyr, um, you know, as he's lying there in state on some barge, you know, (laughs) or whatever. But but um, (laughs) but there's that's actually something I did like about the the uh, put it in quotes the story again I think it's not so much the story as much as mm-hmm. it is Bauer um, and uh, Duvivier but it's that you can have this thing happen at the beginning this suicide right at the very beginning and that was probably my favorite part of the film because you'd think that you were supposed to think Bauer was some selfish um, jerk and 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 he is to an extent. But so is the partner, you know, they're mm-hmm. sitting there talking and the partner is just as competitive and would be just as likely to leave Goldaire out to dry as Goldaire is to leave him out to dry. In fact, that's one of the reasons that Goldaire is, is breaking things off and moving on on his own is because his partner has been doing things behind his back. Um, his partner just, you know, has lost everything and goes out and commits suicide. The, and 
you know, again, you'd think that that would make Golder be an, an evil person, but it actually seems to affect him. I mean, when he says stuff like, well, he just couldn't handle it, you're not supposed to do that, you can see under the surface that it, it that's just the words he's telling himself in a, in a sense, that this, this weight, all this stuff going on is starting to get to him so that by the end, even that is part of his his decision to kind of just relinquish things and, and move on from other people in his life. Um, it, you, you know, so, so going back to Bauer's performance there and how he's able to kind of portray a, this guy that, you know, I mean, I'm trying to imagine how someone would would remake David Goldair today in today's political climate. Oh boy, he would never ever be sympathetic, and any critic who tried to argue that he was would probably be lambasted, you know, because these guys just aren't sympathetic. I mean, just just for example, this is completely a tangent, but yesterday you guys, I'm sure, saw that video of that interviewee. On BBC, the father, yes. oh, the, with the kids, kids barging through the kids barge in, and then and then I yeah, I've seen reports where it's his wife, and I've seen reports where it's the the au pair, but I I don't know which is true. But comes in and gets the kids, and it's been you know I thought it was it was funny, but there are a lot of articles all of a sudden about how that's just a symbol of the patriarchy and of capital. You know, here's a man in a mm-hmm. suit, and he's he's um, talking about uh, uh, international. Uh, world affairs and there, you know, how typical of him to just shove his child in the face (laughs) and strong arm him. Yeah. And I, I I just think uh, that same mentality applied to this movie where it's almost a, um, you know, he, and, and, and yeah, David Goldera is less sympathetic than this poor fellow who probably from my (laughs) perspective was just, you know, on the air, I don't know, but um, but just Probably to, annoyed, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, and 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 embarrassed, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and and not expecting it, and so not really thinking through what what <laughs> he's doing. Um, but well, you know, you've had a few kids kind of barging at your door over the years. Of podcasting here, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, them out a few times. <laughs> it happens, and sometimes I am embarrassed, and sometimes I mute you guys, and I'm like, guys, get out of here. <laughs> um, so. But at, at any rate, you know, I, I think of that same kind of Twitter um, th- think piece um, reaction to something like David Goldair today just would not fly. But it, it yet it has to because there is a lot of nuance here, um, and Harry Bauer is responsible for that. I'm not saying Goldair is is a saint. I don't think he deserves the martyrdom. Um, but I think we can look at him as someone who has had a life, you know, and has that life has, has weighed on him and what's he going to do now? Um, so, so that, those are the aspects of the film that really kind of affected me <coughs> again, more than the story elements. Um, and I'll be honest, even like the, the Russian deal, um, the political significance of that kind of washed over me. So <laughs> yeah, well, you, was, you touch, you touch on a really interesting point about, I think, uh, about Goldair being evil or unethical. And actually, I, I had the opposite reaction. I, I thought he was, even though he was this corporate, or not corporate, but this this business magnet, he almost seemed to be the ethical center. Um, and I, I think just being in business, you, you're you um, just the nature of the greediness and, and that you have to, I guess, win over your po- opponent is sometimes looked down unfavorable, unfavorably. But 
in contrast with the other people, as you mentioned. Which, the, which, which really quickly, I'm sorry, I, I think is kind of the point of the film. Yeah, it's this the is what This is what this does to you, which is why mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate that the beginning, both Goldair and his partner are both seen as um, not in the right, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Sorry and, to interrupt you. No, I, I think I interrupted you, but... Um, but And there's the other character uh, around the middle of the film. If you remember, he was involved in some criminal activity that re- involved a fish, fish hatchery in Monaco, which wasn't described in any detail, probably some sort of uh, corrupt operation. And that guy went to jail. Uh, and then I think when asked how things turned out, he just said, well, but things are better now. So I... Again, I think that Goldair, relative to these guys who are borderline criminals, if not outright criminals, he's just greedy. He's just a capitalist. Um, But I think that that's where the story, which I agree is flat, um, takes him down the the path of shedding that, uh, you know, getting – not tolerating his daughter that wants a Bugatti just because she's bored (laughs) Uh, and that he kind of lets money slip through his fingers and – um, endears himself, makes the stock market crash. So I, I think he was kind of speaking for the everyman there. Um, but then, of course, just to, uh, I think maybe maybe the ending is where we'll get into the, mm-hmm. where that changes. But well, I think I think there is a a redemption that takes place here. I mean, he he kind of tears down his own uh, facade of success and and. Uh, material prosperity you know he he basically abandons his his wife who's been faithless mm-hmm. i mean what a what a gripping scene i guess one of the other things that's maybe just in general about these two films is how you know the story is just kind of going along and then something happens of incredibly you know intense nature and th- and this conflict between uh, david and his wife is just really when he's laying in his recuperation bed and she comes in and of course the first thing she does is picks his pocket you know, uh, you know you know steals his the money out of his wallet while he's kind of laying there asleep and then they have their little exchange and he's you know you know talk about pearl clutching <laughs> he, he really you know kind of lets her have it and it just turns into this really savage you know uh conflict between husband and wife where they just each kind of spill these resentments that they've both been holding in for all these years and i'm sure they probably knew this about each other and this isn't the first time they've ever exchanged it but the way it impacted me as a viewer was like wow that got well that escalated quickly (laughs) to use another (laughs) little quick catchphrase um and and so you know, you have this really uh, brutal showdown where she confesses or acknowledges to him, presumably for the first time, that Joyce, this daughter that is so beloved, a you know, little apple of his eye, is not actually his daughter. That mm-hmm. it's the, the, the Hoyos. The, the Hoyos daughter and, and the, the child of their illicit union. I mean, what a... I mean, if that's not the the kind of blow that'll kill a man who's already, you know, suffering from heart condition and all of that, she's almost just grinding it in his face, trying to say, "Okay, take that." And and then, of course, he plays his trump card, which is, "Well, when when I die, you get nothing. I'll 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 maintain the illusion for now. I'll maintain your lifestyle while I'm still alive." Uh, but once I'm dead, you're out. And, you know, all of a sudden she finds herself wanting to kill the guy, but realizing that that would be her, her ruin. And it's just like, 
I don't know. There, there. That that was a very powerful, very affecting scene. Just the, the, the cruelty and the and the uh, and the volatility of the conflict between these these two individuals, uh, who've presumably built a life and shared a history together, but now it's just so corrupted and so bitter. And so, as as D- David Goldair goes through this process of stripping away all of all of these gains and and even. Uh, making business deals that will affect generations to come when he signs away this 99 year you know right. agreement <laughs> uh you know he's 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 almost functioning in historic terms but then it comes down to kind of recreating the journey of his own youth when he was the poor you know Jewish uh you know rag picker you know coming up from the ghettos and uh, he meets another young man very much like a younger version of himself almost to whom he bequeaths his fortune and and places his fate in the hands and it's like his life has come full circle so there is kind of a a narrative artifice to all of that i mean it, it works out so exquisitely <laughs> poetic you know and all of that mm-hmm. but it is a it's a very you know it's a powerful concept and i i just really appreciate the the beauty of its execution as he is laying there uh that 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 shot of him as he's just laying there with with the young uh He's almost uh, you know, a, a young Orthodox Jew. You see the little mm-hmm. you know, side curls and all of that and the prayer ritual that he's going through. Uh, you know, it's it's a very spiritual moment there, and you're just lingering on, on Harry Bauer's you know, uh, face for what feels like several minutes, and he's just kind of staring into the void, and you're just almost imagining what is his internal experience, what's he consciously going through without uttering a word without even twitching a muscle on his face we're just locked in there as his life comes to an end and it's yeah to me just it was a very very emotional uh and and very riveting conclusion that i wasn't expecting necessarily and and the um i guess the 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 daring of a young director to say my my last shot is just going to be that that a guy's face for a couple of minutes without without a cut you know that's that seems that seems to me pretty bold filmmaking for a guy who hasn't fully established himself, but he's going to go for it anyways. I think it's fair to say that uh, happy endings weren't always common in French films, and and right. that, that's actually one thing I like about them is that you don't really know. You truly a Hollywood film today, you exactly you know absolutely what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, but one thing about Goldair also is he's so victimized, and he. Uh, yeah. And so I think that's another way he becomes endearing and, and sympathetic is because these ladies truly take advantage of him. He really is just their their ATM, really. Um, and I, I think since you brought it up, the the ending, he does change face or he does, I guess, readopt his a daughter his, who's not his daughter. And yes, any conversation that ends with your daughter is not your daughter is a rough conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, but the thing is, he he does back off that. Uh, maybe if it were a true, uh, if he were true to his feelings and to uh, to these flat characters that took advantage of him, maybe an, another all, uh, ending could have been him giving it all to the, the the gentleman on the boat. That that might have been another way, and and maybe a, the way Joyce and uh, his his wife treated him, maybe that's would have been more. Um, I guess they're just desserts for them to not get anything. So it, it's actually a happy ending for them, very tragic ending for Bauer, uh, Bauer for Goldair, and and yes, Bauer, 
the guy could act. Uh, that scene, uh, uh, all the scenes we've mentioned, um, I can just watch him. And I think he really does elevate what's basically tired material. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, uh, his 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 aura of authority and, and of brokenness at the same time, you know, uh, is, is, is pretty, pretty unique, pretty impressive. Mm hmm. Any other bits about uh, David Goldair that uh, stand out? Or are we ready to move on, Trevor? Any last thoughts on the film? I mean, I guess you've maybe summed it up already, but yeah, no, I'm I'm good to move on to another film where, because of this predilection to not always have happy endings, I had no idea what was going to happen <laughs> at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it scared I, me. I went into yeah, I went into Paul de Carat completely blind, and uh, man, I was really locked in as it got towards the end there. So. Well, yeah, so let's go ahead and talk about Paul de Carat, which, uh, as we said, is, uh, you know, Carrot Top is the literal translation. Of course, I can't say Carrot Top without thinking of a certain... I know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> spoiled. Scare quotes comedian there. This yeah, comedian but, uh, ruined French cinema. <laughs> <laughs> well, take but, it back. Uh, we took it back by watching this film. That's why, that's right. that's why this hasn't been remade, is because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he owns the rights. If he <laughs> His asking price is exorbitant, right? He, he would have no, to actually, play the role. Yeah. <laughs> actually, the story has been remade. I did a little bit of research, and, uh, oh, it and it's been adapted. Uh, there were some TV productions as recently as, I think, the 2000s and the 90s. There have been different... Uh, French adaptations and 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 this character, this uh, you know, literally this redheaded stepchild, is kind <laughs> of a, a a little bit of an archetype, I guess you could say. He's a you know, he's a boy growing up in the uh, French countryside uh, with a very indifferent father, uh, a man who basically is into his local politics and hunting. Those are the things that he likes to do. Uh, the mother, who's probably suffering from a bit of neglect and feeling taken for granted and unloved and unrespected but she's become very cruel and uh very uh, in, you know sort of condemning and judgmental towards her youngest son she has two other children an oldest son who's favored and a daughter who's just kind of sort of the middle child i guess you could say and uh and of course he's got there's a there's a couple of household servants but this boy uh carrot top uh as I think we probably will refer to him throughout the film, um, Poil de Carat. But that's that's kind of an unwieldy nickname. It's a mouthful, you know, yeah. Yeah, even if you're a native French speaker, it's like you know that's like all those syllables for a nickname doesn't really quite make sense. But that's what they call him, and this is based on the uh, life experiences of the writer. I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, the guy who wrote this story, oh. My tablet just went to sleep, so I can't look it up. Jules <laughs> Renard. Thank you very much. Nice, Trevor, nice job with the R there. <laughs> Thank right, you, but not someone I know anything about, other than his name right. is on the <laughs> on the disc here. So, but it, it, it feels like the characters uh, kind of like another maybe redhead more familiar to Americans, a uh, Pippi mm -hmm. Longstocking or an Anne of Green Gables, kind of one of these stock characters who just sort of the idea sort of takes on a life of its own. You know, the the the, the young boy who just doesn't quite fit in. Uh, he's just kind of a gangly misfit. Um, and uh, as the film goes on, uh, certainly I couldn't step too far out of my own professional lens and say this is a yeah. traumatized, abused child. This Absolutely. is a kid who's been really horribly treated and not just from the school of hard knocks, but 
you know, I got the feeling of sexual abuse and all kinds of nasty business that goes on uh, behind the scenes, but really is is in some ways pretty pretty clearly hinted at in, in several scenes throughout this film. So really, this is a story of a young boy's struggles um, uh, to to find his little niche uh, in in this community. He is consistently browbeaten, looked down upon. He's a loner. He never really seems to have any friends other than one little girl, uh, maybe roughly half his age, who he sort of refers to as his fiance, and they even have a little uh, mocked up wedding. And and he does find a few adults who befriend him. But even then, even then, (laughs) you're not even exactly sure what their intentions are towards him. So uh, a very, a very uh, gritty look at the youth of children um, from uh, a time, you know, over a hundred years ago from the source material and, mm-hmm. you know, quite a long time ago, you know, as far as the film is concerned. So uh, yeah. Uh, who wants to kind of pick it up from there? Well, I, 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 I don't mind just stepping off of something you just said being, you know, a gritty look at this. I think um, listeners should also know that there's quite a bit of whimsy in this film. It's, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting mixture that um, you, I don't think you get very often. I, I was watching it, and my wife was working on um, some stuff. She couldn't see the screen, but she could hear the dialogue. She could hear the music. She could hear just the general tone, and you know, she was pretty spot on. What she would say is, "It's something like this going on now," and I'm like, "Yeah." And uh, there was a time when she said, "This sounds like a Disney movie," and I'm like, "Well, yeah, you know, at times <laughs> it, it kind of does." Um, yeah. It's a, it's a great mixture of 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 that. Yeah, he's spunky. He's a little smart aleck at times. He's mm-hmm. a, he's a survivor, and he he can be charming. And and there's definitely those those moments of frivolity and oh, what's that little rascal up to now? Type of thing. And I, I don't know that his hair was actually red in, in the police station at the in the beginning. They said his hair was blonde. Remember, but he just said just because his mother said it was red uh, that he was. So yeah, I, of course we can't tell really with the um, the. The black and white the print doesn't really reveal, and I think his freckles were—they looked like they were painted on. I oh yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the continuity yeah. didn't really carry over too well. <laughs> I mean, I didn't freeze frame uh, different scenes and compare freckles, but uh, but no, he, I, I thought he was a very uh, a jovial kid. You know, they, he played leapfrog, uh, and he was actually that opening scene in the uh, the police that was station. Great, yeah. Uh, he yeah, tremendous performance for a child. And in fact, we talked about Harry Bauer last time. I think. Bowers kind of um, in the sidelines here. I think the yeah. the kid really uh, yeah really was something. Um, but no, I, I like the way it opens too. Uh, to your point of uh, dysfunction, is uh, the kid says, "quote A family is a group of people forced to live under one roof who cannot stand each other." Yes, uh, yes, that's uh, and that's what he's writing in an essay as he's getting ready to go home because he's been sent off to boarding school too. You know, this is a a family of some means. I mean, the, they yeah. have a housekeeper, a live-in maid, and then they actually bring in a second one as it becomes clear that the uh, the old maid uh literally aged maid is is kind of losing her her touch as a housekeeper and they need to bring in a younger woman which you know you know the french maid Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's always the intrigues and and innuendos surrounding that and diary of the chambermaid kind of (laughs) exactly (laughs) or just you just a a younger woman coming into a household uh i think uh uh what's uh 
uh, Bodu saved from drowning has some some sure. play with that idea. You know, they bring in the frisky young thing to, to take, take care of the place, and the master of the house catches her alone and unawares, and all of that. But uh, yeah, this this is a it's an interesting film. I mean, would you call this a a family drama? Well, the elements of it are certainly there, and yeah, the uh, Trevor's wife's observation this sounds kind of Disney esque. This could be you know Disney uh, with a little bit of editing or uh, you know maybe a few changes of directions because it does go to some pretty dark places um but yeah i i just found this story just very fascinating uh just in terms of uh what i would sort of call a uh sort of a a pre-modern view of childhood uh even some signs of schizophrenia with some of the voices he's hearing and telling him to kill himself and stuff like that it's just you know like wow this is this is very fascinating to me just uh, from the whole view of of psychology and and the social services work that i do professionally yeah and put together so 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 well you you mentioned at the beginning this the story is elemental um it's it's very familiar and and uh and not not tired necessarily, you know. There'll be another one of these films coming out here shortly, you know, <laughs> of, of a of a child who does has to fight for some kind of connection or is missing it. Um, but there's so much light and um, and space and air in this movie, and yes, even the setting is, is yeah, wonderful. The the scene where he goes outside at night to to take out the the melon rind the chickens there yeah. yeah and the the superimposed ghosts are kind of chasing him around um boy that was just just brilliant and and yes yeah, so they're dancing know, in a circle and he sort of gets surrounded and he's like almost like bouncing as they're sort of doing this circle they, dance around him and, and they the, the chase choreography him was really quite <laughs> yeah. because he would he would get like right up to them and then be kicked around and it's like yeah this is very skillfully done because sometimes you see those kind of trick shots and he goes a little too far doesn't go quite it was very very nicely crafted there but it, it again kind of ties together a couple of the elements that's just a childhood fear that he's having there maybe maybe he has some other trauma but you know that's familiar to most kids um, mm-hmm. even kids who don't have um, the same situation he has going outside at night is, is scary and so that's relatable but then later on with the other superimposed images like you were saying David telling him he should um, work to to find a way to kill himself you know that that those are childhood things that hopefully most kids don't have to go through and becomes very dark with that it just there, again, just that kind of mix of all these elements that comes together to make this a rather basic um, story elements into something so rich and so so interesting and psychologically um, just quite brilliant, especially as portrayed by that that actor um, Robert Linen is his name. Um, do you mind if I take just one second to to kind of sadly, you know, tell what happens with him? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was I mean, curious when you hinted at that earlier. What what happened? Yeah. Well, well, so Harry Bauer, um, he he was tortured by the Gestapo 
in like 1942 and died shortly thereafter under under his like I think Wikipedia or something says mysterious circumstances, you know. So he he's dead in 1943, early 1943. We mm-hmm. talked last time Irene Nemirovsky. She's she's gone at that same time. Um, this Robert Linen, you know, young boy in this one, he has grown up over the next decade and joined the French Resistance and was executed. Um, but he oh, was a huge star. Uh, this film so, was was a major breakthrough for him, and you can see why. He's so captivating, and so, so the, there's so much charm and darkness all at once in there. And, you know, the ending, uh, wow, with, yeah. with him and um, Harry Bauer, that, that end scene, which I guess we'll get to here in a bit. Um, was he uh, with the, the Vichy government? Is that... Why, I don't he, know those kinds of details. Okay, uh, it's just yeah. with the French resistance is what I read. Yeah, um, well, he would be fighting the Vichy government. Oh, then, okay. Right? Oh, right. Yeah. So, so, I, I'm, like Home Lucienne or Army of Shadows. <laughs> I'm trying to... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, so, but yeah, but he... So he didn't... It's just... It's kind of... Uh, it's sobering to look at this art being made mm-hmm. at this time and realize the politics that are that are shaping the world these, these actors are going to be in and that they're not going to survive um here in just yeah. a little bit it, and, it, and they didn't just run away to america i mean not that there's no shame in that but certainly right. a lot of the artists mm-hmm. that we celebrate we celebrate because they were able to continue to live and extend their careers past the war years but obviously many did not you know and even even you know even these creative art, artistic types i mean that that just breaks my heart to think Sad. about harry bauer you mm-hmm. know having to end his life under such circumstances not that it's less heartbreaking for you know anonymous people but you know after all the admiration that that I, that we've expressed for him and and it's just man just the cruelty and the tragedy of it is is appalling it is tragic but i will say one thing about uh du vivier is and and we sort of saw that with david goldair and we'll certainly see that with his later films is uh, even if his films were on a different topic he does sort of. There's a hint of the, the politics and um, of, at, the, at the time, and and sometimes the it's more prominent. Like I think David Goldair for sure, it's more prominent. Um, uh, uh, La Bella Quip, it's more. Um, it, it's sort of an allegory for um, for political um, systems, and then of course uh, Pepe Lamoco, I think, uh, gets right, right down to the to the. Um, the essence, but uh, well, the colonial aspect, especially. But I think this may be, I this might be a little bit of a reach, but I think it may, may reflect some of the uncertainty. Uh, I, I maybe it's going too far to think, uh, you know, that that France is this child and that uh, that the Germans are are they are treating him poorly. It's probably too too far away for that, but I, I you can see the run up to this, um, to these, uh, this political quagmire, and I, I hinted at the the popular front in the last film but that was a communist movement that would uh, reach power uh, leon blum in i think it was 35 or 36 uh and then it would collapse and so uh so that and duvivier did comment on that on his films uh, as we'll we'll touch on so not to digress too far but uh, there might be a little bit of that yeah, well, th- this village where everything takes place is a another little sort of snapshot of French society. I, I have to imagine at the time that, you know, this might have felt maybe a little bit less than contemporary. This feels a little retro throwback, you know. Bucolic. A little bit, 
Yeah, exactly. Bucolic, rustic, uh, kind of you know how life used to be for a lot of the adult viewers of this of this film when it was released or or even people you know maybe a little bit more senior in their 40s or 50s kind of thinking back to life when life was simpler back in the good old days when we used you know candles and and you know, to light our rooms rather than you know gaslight or electricity or things of that sort but um, you know it's 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 certainly not a, a, a nostalgia trip either uh, there's right <laughs> you know, there's there's just this there's this darkness of of um how children are treated, how adults mm-hmm. kind of overlook the needs of the of the more vulnerable, uh, even some of the uh, you know, intrigues between the the servants and stuff like that. And there's just so many fascinating elements. But but I think you know as Trevor's alluded to as well, it's just that that visual beauty, the richness of the countryside and the country architecture, and uh, you know, these environments makes this a, a film just worth kind of lingering in and relishing in those early portions before you really <laughs> recognize how how serious the story is going to get mm-hmm. towards its conclusion yeah, well and like there's a day the... in the country meets the yearling sorry trevor <laughs> go ahead no i was just thinking again i i guess i'm i'm on this mixture but you get that really lovely scene where he's driving the carriage and the the maid through um, down the street and you're you know it's beautiful outside and you have these families playing and it's just a joy to watch but for him it's a paradise for him that's just a reminder of things he doesn't have and it becomes a, a yeah. really threatening scene as he's almost running people down he's just going out of control again <laughs> french cinema you don't know what's going to happen is he going to yeah. kill someone is he going to die is the maid going to die you don't it, know yeah i was really expecting that thing to turn over the, the cart you know and, and he's kind of abusing that horse just kind of whipping <laughs> yeah. him. i mean not maybe physically strong enough to actually injure the horse but it's same that same kind of projected uh, transferal of abuse you know he's probably been beaten himself like this and he's just you know, displacing it all on this poor animal, and of course, putting himself and and the maid at risk, uh, and the people, the the pedestrians on the road, who all of a sudden hear this, you know, char- charging hoofbeats right behind him, and they got to make make clear. And 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 what a great shot that that one shot of where the cameras seems to be mounted right on the back of the uh, uh, right on the back of the horse there. So there's some really yeah, yeah. vivid filmmaking going on as well as just the uh, you know the intensity of the performance itself. And, you and all in this about, beautiful setting. <laughs> you already talked about the uh, the superimposed images uh, uh, but I, I think those little dream sequences where he's talking to himself and uh, yeah. and then when he later there's another se- sequence he climbs out of the window and over the roof uh, yeah it's um uh, no that was just that wasn't really with the filmmaking. That was just actually that was kind of a visions of Game of Thrones. If you've uh, if you've watched that show, um, probably not. Uh, <laughs> I have not. Okay, well, no. people that are listening that have will get that if they've seen the movie. But uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I think uh, again with Goldare, we talked about the the filmmaking, the camera movement. I think the camera is more um, more stable here, but again, it captures the uh, the the landscape beauty and uh and then with some cinema tricks i think captures character uh conflict so him his conflicted nature you know he lives in this beautiful world he's having a great having a blast he's a good-natured kid but he's being abused and he's being tortured and he's trying to reconcile that and i thought that they used the film language well to um to 
sort of communicate that. Meanwhile, the other, the, the, the parents, even the maid to an extent, and the maid is a neutral perspective and she's concerned, but I think she's still a little oblivious to what what's really going on. And the father doesn't care until, until he does. And the mother doesn't care. I, I, she probably really never cares. I think that's the point. She's, and we talked about the flat characters with David Goldair. I think they exist here as well, more with the mother than the father. But yeah, I mean, the mother may be seeing her youngest son as kind of the, you know, unwanted product of a loveless marriage. You know, her husband presumably lost interest in her at some point, mm-hmm. and she's just become very bitter. And this child is sort of that, that last piece of baggage, you know, that, that she just would rather not have to deal with, you know, but, but she's also interested in putting on airs, you know, she will make a show of, of, you know, forcing him to make uh, affectionate statements uh, when others are there to listen. And so there, there's this kind of venal hypocrisy and she's definitely a very nasty character. I guess you have to say women don't come across as very sympathetic <laughs> figures in, in Duvivier's films, at least the two that we're well, talking about not, today. Not all. There, there are some coming up that they're, they're, they come off a little better. But also she has uh, socialized him to uh, really almost become accepting of his own abuse. And I, th- I think that's why, where that inner, inner torment is. Um, there's the one scene where he, um, he was going to go to hunt with his dad, and, and I forget the specifics, but she told him to make an excuse and then uh, and then the maid wanted uh, Karat to tell his dad that it was the the mother that made that excuse, and yeah. Karat turned to her and said, "I'll mind your own business. Get out of the you know." Yeah. He doesn't want to get punished, so um, he's it's really just self preservation, survival. And again, I I don't want to reach too much, but that could speak to the political situation. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, you know there are there are some scenes that would be very difficult to to see made at least in an American movie nowadays. I mean, the scene where he's, you know, running around naked on the stream there and and another, you know, middle-aged man, fisherman is kind of there, (laughs) you know, cracking jokes with him. And it's like, that just kind of gave me the creeps. Yeah, I don't think so. My my alerts were going off there. (laughs) And and then, then of course, there is the the final scene, which, you know, we've probably gone way past spoiler alerts there. But... You know, and in fact, Might as I well. saw later on on the poster there. You know, there's a suicide attempt is depicted right there in the in the in the promotional art. And another thing, you're probably not going to see in movies made <laughs> in 2017. You know, well, there is um, a lot of foreshadowing yeah. for it too. And in fact, there I, is a lot of foreshadowing, right? I kind of wondered how he was going to do it. Um, I, I remember they lingered on the scene with a gun. So I, I yeah. and of course, I think screenwriting 101. You put the gun in the first act; it's going to show up in the third. It didn't. But uh, and in fact, he there was the uh, he was going to drown himself, and the other person, right. the other, put his head in the bucket, throw right. himself in the pond. Yeah, right. So yeah, you you, but you're seeing that that drive towards self destruction, and mm-hmm. just even the way he just misery, his cringes when when people try to touch him or put put their arm around him or even give him kind of a reassuring, hey, I am I'm trying to understand, and he just has that classic. PTSD response, like oh mm-hmm. no, 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 don't, don't you do that to me? Well, uh, but then yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Duvivier does um, foreshadow the rope because, and and you're talking about cringing when touching. Oh, kind yeah, of right. brought it up. He, right, he's running right. through the he, attic there. He's walking through the attic, and it, it kind of catches on him, and he, he jumps back. Um, so 
yeah, there's all kind. There's there's a lot of threat mm-hmm. <laughs> of of what's yeah. coming throughout. But then that moment finally arrives, and like I say, I, I you know, because these movies are not predictable, and because they are ready to wrap it up on the darkest of notes in these French films, which I appreciate. I appreciate the courage, <laughs> and I appreciate the unpredictability. I just really did not know <laughs> what we were in for. But I was, I was, it was a little bit of a white knuckle for me the first time through, just like, oh, man. What's yeah, I was, I was ready. I was waiting for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, and what a testimony to Duvivier's ability and the kid, the kid actor, to really get us to invest in this character. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times these movies are a little bit you know youth oriented films uh, feel sometimes very cookie cutter and you pretty much know that the tension or the danger isn't real it's it's not it's just a setup and everything's going to be you know happy go lucky in the end and there is definitely a a, a more affirming heartwarming conclusion to all of this and perhaps even a little bit simplistic now that you know uh Papa is going to call him Francois rather than Carrot Top. Mm-hmm. Everything's great now. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think everything's going to just be hunky dory. I, I think uh, I don't think there was enough therapy back in hundred years ago to um, right. to, to get him right. But uh, but things were definitely better than they were. Yeah, yeah. There's been there, there's been growth, and the father has realized that he's been neglecting some things. And come on, guys, this is Harry cool. Bauer. Of course, it's going to be okay now. Oh, of course, right? Yeah, Harry's got this, right? We'll, we'll, we'll take a boat ride; it'll be fine. <laughs> I don't know that that moment though might have shocked in a little bit more sense into into each of them because they'd already kind of had a few moments of reconciliation where the dad realizes my wife is abusing my son and I don't want mm-hmm. that, and where he says, you know, come to this celebration with me. You kind of think, okay, things are going to be okay, and so does the boy. And then it's not because the dad is distracted by everything that's going on and the mom does try to prevent him from going there and he he does feel out of place as everyone's staring at his clothes and um you know it just it, it isn't perfect but but there's a, there's like a breakthrough and I think Bauer actually does it with his voice when he's holding his son with the noose around his neck his son has already jumped I mean this wasn't like right. oh it he was a really him. close thing it, this son was going to die if mm-hmm. the dad didn't show up at that moment. And he says very quietly, take the rope from your neck. And mm-hmm. then he says it again, take the rope from your neck. And then he, he gutturally belts it, you know, take the rope from your neck. But I'm not going to yell it here. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's some power in that that I think shocks each of them out of out of some long hell, you know, just some problems that they were having. Uh, so I, I don't think everything's going to be just fine. I mean, they didn't. You know, they didn't leave the family, and he's the dad's still the mayor and got all these other distractions. But I do think that it's more that there's reason to think that there's more hope going forward than there has been in the past. I think that there's that moment of I genuinely do not want you to die. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, feeling and the boy I- saying, "I guess that means enough to me. I'm not going to." Some sensation that he belongs, that he's appreciated, yes. even if, and he maybe doesn't have to be reminded of it all the time going forward, but at least once. And it, it, it's unfortunate it took took him trying to attempt suicide, uh, really, actually attempting suicide for him to get there. But uh, but yeah, it's a it's a bittersweet ending. I guess you might describe it as a happy ending. Uh, I think by French standards, definitely a happy ending. But uh, yeah, bittersweet. 
Well, and this this was a I, I think a pretty popular film. Um, as as Trevor's already uh, indicated, it, it launched the young man into a pretty successful career as a as a you know, child actor. Um, and it's it is interesting to think of a director remaking his own film from just seven years earlier. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. not something you see either in the past or or currently. To say, hey, let's take another swipe at this one. Yeah. Obviously, the transition from silent to talky, you know, is a is a big change, and perhaps they thought that this story had legs that would would appeal to an audience uh, as long if they could give the characters the dialogue. And I, maybe they just said, hey, we got Harry Bauer, we got this young kid with a lot of talent, a lot of potential. So let's let's uh, make it even better this time. But <laughs> did yeah, and did you a- see? Did you see in the liner notes that he was going to remake it again in the fifties in color using Jean Gabon? Oh, wow. I, I didn't. I, you know, it's funny. I, I usually read those notes all the all the way through. I just got busy and I haven't even looked at those yet. So yeah, this <laughs> well, this yeah. this story yeah. stuck with him, and you know, yeah. again, you you can see the movements that would go. Yeah, now we've got color, and Jean Gabon was going to play the father. It didn't happen, I could, but yeah. Yeah. it would have been something. <laughs> well, I think I think we're all in agreement that the material in David Goldair isn't perfect. Maybe the novel's better. I don't know if you read it, Trevor, but um, but I think this material is a whole lot better, and I think uh, the execution was just as good. So I'd say this is a far better film than Goldair. Not nothing really against Goldair, uh, but I, I could I think a, a remake in the fifties with Gabine could have been good. Uh, and, and Duvivier by then he'd kind of had ups and downs after the war, but he was, uh, certainly a quality filmmaker and made some, some good later works. Well, and speaking of quality filmmaker, I think I am intrigued to see where our conversation goes in the, in the weeks ahead, because Duvivier was clearly of that generation and of that mode that the Nouvelle Vague really rebelled against. And so that's probably mm-hmm. is yeah. better topic to cover as we, you know, get out of the early years of his career and towards uh, his later achievements. And I'm not even saying by the you know 30s and early 40s is that those are maybe his his peak years in terms of his enduring legacy. But uh, he was making movies in the 40s and 50s of which the Truffauts and Godards really didn't have a lot of uh, respect or patience with. But uh, yeah, that's maybe a, a preview the, of things to come. The uh, Truffaut essay, a uh, certain tendency of French cinema, I think pretty much trashed all of them but what's interesting is 400 blows is not that far from this film well you know that's that's exactly the thought i had as well is that this this character this carrot top slash Francoise, is is really part of a lineage of of uh, impetuous uh wily street smart french kids you know who uh you know, kind of take matters into their own hands. They kind of tweak their nose at authority. Uh, they kind of get the last laugh, the last word, and uh, you know, more power to them. And so yeah. <laughs> it is interesting because even even some of the uh, you know the the loving uh, portrayals of of the young man kind of romping free at play in his environment. I mean, whether it's the the little country village here or it's the streets of downtown Paris where Truffaut himself grew up and where Antoine Doinel is kind of, you know, uh, living the, living the life, uh, you know, it's, yeah, there's a difference of environment, but the attitude is very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think he was, he did dismiss a lot of the, the, the big filmmakers of the thirties, but I, I don't think it was a categorical takedown. I think it was made, I, I, it was just, uh, that, that stuff is stale. Let's do something new. 
So. Exactly. It's, it's more of just a generational conflict this time for the old folks to step exactly. aside and let us take over. So, well, that's great. Well, I, you know, I, any other final thoughts on on uh, carrot top here? On the, <laughs> the redhead. Yes, the redhead. Uh, I, th- I thought it was a. Uh, I was just like you. I was enraptured, and I thought it was a uh, um, an easier watch than than Gold Air. I thought it was a very entertaining movie, even if it was kind of bleak. Uh, so I I put it up there with Duvivier's best. But I think uh, yeah. you guys are like I said, you're in for a treat with uh, some of the films coming up. Yeah, yeah, you definitely see a little more polish. I mean, the, the, David Godard had some really beautiful sequences, but you know, the, even the quality of the the film preservation and the, there's a little bit more of a glow here. Yeah, David Godard, the 1930 early talkie, still has a little bit of that, you know, kind of. It, 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 there, I guess you know, as I'm watching him, kind of in rapid succession here this morning, just kind of reviewing him or having him play back as we talk here, <laughs> you can sort of see. That, that transition from 1929, 1930 to even a few years later where they've really made some technical gains. Um, you know, the, the, that opening sequence of David Godard, the, 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 the montage of the ships and everything really felt like a silent movie sequence that's been transposed into a, a sound film. But yeah, the, you know, these, these films, like I said earlier, kind of show an artist who's, who's building up his resume growing more confident and has really good stuff ahead of him. So I'm excited to see where we go from here. Yeah, it's too bad. You probably can't get a hold of Marie Chapdelaine. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it, but that's a Quebecois movie that he made that's also in the mm. wilderness. Uh, and, and I don't know the year it was set, but it was also about 100 years ago. So I think that was a uh, territory that, um, or a, I guess, landscape that uh, Duvivier was exploring at the time. But yeah, uh, I La Bella Quip and um, Pepe Lamoco, La Bandera, those are um, going to be interesting films for you guys to, to dig into. All right. Well, I've got my marching orders. I will go out and find a, find a way to view these treasures and uh, be ready to talk about them in a couple of weeks. That's the tough part is finding them. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know which ones you'll find. And that's I'll do unfortunate. My work as uh, best I can. You yeah. can find all the Renoirs, or just about all the Renoirs, but you can't find all the Duviviers. So yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll explore a little bit further as to why his name has maybe languished a little bit, or his reputation has maybe uh, declined undeservedly. So, but let's go ahead and get this episode wrapped up. Uh, Aaron, you want to just kind of give us a little previews of what else you got going on, or what might be happening in your podcasting world these days? Oh yeah, I've been pretty busy, and that—that's with this project. That's going to continue, but I—but I love it. Uh, so probably by the time this comes out, our Ozu episode will be out. Uh, our Criterion close-up, uh, really focused on late spring, but we kind of touched on all of Ozu or as much Ozu as we could. Yeah, yeah that's a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. a ten-hour podcast. It was okay. Uh, it was, uh, Mark, Matt, and myself did that. Worked on that. Uh, have Criterion Now's pretty much every week. I think. Uh, might take a break soon, but I'm enjoying it. It's pretty easy. So, so yeah, I've been pretty active. Excellent. Trevor, what you got going on these days? Well, um, the Best Translated Book Award 
the the long list comes out in a couple of weeks, and right. we've already got it figured out. So I know what it is, um, and it, I'm excited about that. Those are always that's always just fun for me. Um, as far as Criterion stuff, you, now you you oh, know what ahead. it is because you have inside knowledge, or because you just have the process calculated. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm one of the judges. <laughs> Oh, oh well, well, okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah, didn't you have like two hundred books to read? For, well, I got four hundred in the mail. I I didn't read that many. Um, Boy, your mailman I, must love you. <laughs> I know. I sometimes think we had him deliver a, a treadmill the other day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, but but yeah, the, that's been a lot of fun. Um, the judging process. I'm kind of glad to see it coming to an end because it's taken so much of my time. Um, it's been a pleasure, but it'll be nice to kind of focus on some other things. Um, and as far as Criterion stuff, I um, just got uh, 45 years Kanoa in, in the mail from them to review. Um, it took them a little while, apparently because of the dang flash sale that mm-hmm. uh, delayed some shipments or something. Um, oh. And blow up um, as well. Oh, you so got blow up. Oh, okay. It, nice. th- th- so that's um, digipack. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun, um, but I haven't had a chance to sit down with them yet. Um, yeah. it, is but, blow up got like a book inside or something? I mean, it, I saw that one screenshot or that one photograph <coughs> of a pretty thick looking box. Yeah, have you had a chance to open it up? Yeah, and I haven't. I haven't. Oh. They, they they just came. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay, well. uh, yeah, I, normally I jump right in on those things. Um, but I got a lot of other packages, too. Um, and then the long list and then this. They just came. An embarrassment um, of riches. You're just a regular <laughs> David Golder of promo. Material. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have I a Bugatti, but you have a treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, no, I'll try and take some pictures um, of, of the packaging yeah. for, for Blow Up because um, I'm, I'm excited to dig in it as well. Yeah. But, yeah, big big month um, for, for that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, as for me, well, obviously podcasting, doing a fair amount of that. Uh, just finished up my blogging series of 1968. Uh, got, I got my first 1969 Criterion Reflections review on Mr. Freedom went up a while back there's a a podcast called the last wave where i did a guest spot talking about an australian silent film from 1919 called a sentimental bloke Uh, maybe google that or uh, look it up but it was a fun conversation with andrew pierce that i enjoyed being a part of and i've got another little intriguing uh, uh, prospect and invitation to do a podcast uh, with a British site, so I'll, I'll kind of keep the details ambiguous for now. But it, it's kind of fun when people look me up and say, "Hey, David, I'd like to podcast with you." And that's that's cool. So mm-hmm. I'll just start out there. I'm open for other invitations to get outside the Criterion world a little bit, uh, or to talk about Criterion with some new voices. I, it's always a, a lot of fun there. So yeah, and then I also got my Olive Signature collection. I posted that in the Facebook groups. <laughs> yeah, that, that was great. Kind of fun. Your, your Olive I didn't complete. really expect the kind of yeah, <laughs> Olive Signature complete, right? I didn't expect right. the. Uh, yeah, the the outpouring of enthusiasm, but I guess there's a few others. It's it's one of those lines that is small enough that mm-hmm. yeah, you can get in on the ground floor, and you only got to get six Blu-rays, and uh, and boom, you've you've got the whole lineup right there. So in five years I mean, from now, I mean, they'll I, they'll be out of print, and you can finally sell them for. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, my, my retirement account there. That's right. Yeah, I just watched the John Ford's The Quiet Man last night. That what a beautiful mm-hmm. uh, transfer, and what a what a very entertaining film that was. Uh, you know, uh, it went into some very unexpected directions at the end there. So I'll just throw a little blurb out about that. Uh, 
So for now, we're going to wrap up uh, part one of our Duvivier conversation, but we've got a lot more ahead. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. Uh, look for us at Eclipse Viewer on Twitter. Send us your thoughts and feedback, and uh, you know probably where to find the rest of us on social media at your various uh, your favorite apps and outlets there. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.